And we think Texas is awesome. <laughs> right, Abigail? Yes. We love Texas. Great food. Yes. I grew up there. In people. Anyway. Um. Hello, and welcome to Inconclusive, the podcast where we randomly select topics and argue about them. Coming up Inconclusive. My name is James. My name is Abigail. And my name is Candace. All three of us are educators at an international school in Taiwan and bring wildly different perspectives to the table. It is important to note that our individual opinions do not necessarily reflect those of our employer. Okay, let's begin. Welcome back, dear listeners. To continue with our series on education, we will be talking about private versus public education. It is important to note that we are all working in a private international school, and we all really love our school. To start, I would like to share this quote from The Guardian. Education is different than other commodities. Its effects are deep, long-term, and run from one generation to the next. Those with enough money are free to purchase and enjoy expensive holidays, cars, houses, and meals, but education is not just another material asset. It is fundamental to creating who we are. I would like also to define our terms. We're talking about private versus public education. To define private education, it is majority privately funded either by an organization or by the families of the students. Whereas public education is state schools, they're offered to all students without charge, and it's funded by taxation. We're also going to be only talking about K-12 schools today. It is my opinion that, generally speaking, private schools are bad for the common good. Private schools generally lead to the perpetuation of classism through exclusivity and the protection of status. I feel kind of torn on this because... I had a public education from K-12 all the way even to college, and my public education is part of what, well, a lot of what brought me to be able to be teaching here at a private school. And I understand that that the, the ways in which I felt about private education growing up were in large part due to one particular school it happened to be in the same conference as us in sports. And this one particular private school, which happened to be a Christian school, we had such a bad rap with them because they were really good with sports. And usually we'd lose to them in a tiebreaker or an overtime. And it would be because of a bad call or a foul that went too far. And eventually there would be cuss words thrown on the field from from at least our side and I'm not sure about the private school side of things but we would have just horrible ideas about this private school and that's all I thought of private education growing up it wasn't until I was teaching here that I really reckoned with the idea that I am now teaching at a school that I the idea of which I used to hate as a high schooler middle schooler because I thought they were privileged I thought that they were getting some sort of treatment that we weren't able to get but when I look back I really don't know how I saw that specifically other than seeing them in sports so I don't really know where that came from I think for me because most of my education was Actually, all of my education prior to college was outside of the U.S., and most of that was in a private setting. So, you know, my I think my opinion on this topic is based. That's based on that, based on having grown up and lived in um, mostly East Asian culture and having attended mostly private Christian schools. Um, so that's that's where I'm going to be coming from. I think for me, the the debate of private and public is, I think, a debate of, for me, it's a debate of government power and whether or not individuals can make decisions on their own based on resources that they have. Um, and I, I don't think we can go with just one or the other. I think both need to be in society um, for different reasons. I want to bounce off of that idea because from from like my perspective of like coming from like a Christian perspective too I f- feel like there's some semblance of responsibility like I actually not some semblance there is responsibility for Christians to um be in in the world but not of the world that we are 
um, moving in between and rubbing shoulders with people who are not believers. And it feels like a lot of private education, at least in the U.S., is in large part based off of pulling uh, out the Christian teachers or Christian students and putting them in their own school. There are a lot of Catholic schools, um, maybe Methodist schools. There's a couple of Baptist schools that I've heard of. Mm-hmm. And it that's what it feels like for from my experience of seeing private education in the U.S. is it's mostly for religious reasons that people open up their own school or a church or a collective of churches or like the Southern Baptist Convention or any other group, they open up their own school separate. And I, I personally feel like that when we are saying... We, let, let's say I'm a parent of a Christian student and I'm saying I want my student to be surrounded by Christian teachers and uh, other Christian students potentially that have Christian parents. And that is much easier to pull that student out of an environment where they could be challenged because you want your kid to be um, safe. You want to encourage safety in your kid. But I feel like that doesn't encourage safety. It, inc- it encourages this almost anti-resilience that they no longer mm. build up a tolerance or build up strength or or um, understanding or growth in how to talk to people who are different than them. Not to say that every private school that is Christian has an entirely Christian body. I completely understand that. And every public school isn't necessarily entirely non-Christian either. I just want to ensure that Christians aren't thinking of education as this battlefield where they need to protect their student or their kids from um, the bullets of other ideas, but rather like a training gym where they get to work with other ideas and think through other ideas and not necessarily need to pull their, their student away from those ideas for fear of what they'll do. I totally agree. I think one, one of the things that you mentioned as kind of like the idea of safety and trying to protect, like, you know, because parents want to protect their children based on what the parents' worldview is in terms of, like, oh, you know, we really want our kids to go through. Like, I know for me, myself, um, having gone through, like, Christian school most of my life, it was because my parents wanted that environment for me. And that, I think, I also, I mean, I also went to public school for two years, and that was because we didn't have good Christian school options nearby. But they really made it a point to, uh, for me to like think about, and they discussed it with me a lot. Was like, think about how life is different in a public school for like a secular, from a secular worldview versus from a Christian worldview. And I, I totally agree that like it shouldn't just be like this bubble of Christianity. I think, you know, like the exchange of ideas is the way humans progress. I've said that before. And uh, so it's good to have like conversations with people that disagree with you. That's why we're having these conversations here. (laughs) That's Um, why we enjoy these conversations. Yes, we are the reason humanity progresses. Hopefully not to a point where (laughs) all our schools are public or all our schools are private because both those scenarios would would be terrible. One of the things you said, Candice, was um, bullets of other ideas, and I really liked that. So kind of, I think, going back to the idea of um, private school not just being religious education, because although there are a lot of private schools that tout Christian education or other religious education, many of them, if you really look into it, either lack a lot of that worldview teaching, at least specifically thinking about the U.S., right? Oftentimes, families are putting their kids into private education because it is the thought is giving them an edge over their peers, whether that's, um, oh, it looks good on a college application, or, um, oh, I don't want my kids to rub shoulders with uh, someone else who doesn't have the same worldview. I want them to have some sort of an edge in their life, which which kind of leads to this idea of a segmented educational system, which students from similar backgrounds attend the same schools. And they hardly ever have contact with kids from other realities, right? So these affluent, because private school, whichever way that you, you know, toss it costs money. Um, I think some of the least expensive private schools in the States are around 5,000 a year. And some more expensive ones can be upwards of 30 to 45,000 a year, right? Which is more than many income brackets. 
even are. That's definitely more than someone who's in the poverty or even low middle class could afford to send their kid to school. Um, and so they're losing this ability to rub shoulders with people from other backgrounds, right? Because advantage breeds advantage, right? So you have more money, so you're able to put your kid into private school who's in turn able to possibly get um, accepted into a better college under a better system to be able to make more money, to be able to send their kids to a private school. And it's continuing this, this step of keeping people impoverished in in that that socioeconomic bracket and keeping people who are affluent able to still be able to make more money, right, than their counterparts. All while simultaneously preventing them from being able to rub shoulders with people who are in different backgrounds. So you have these well-off families and these well-off kids who are able to meet more well-off families and well-off kids, which are creating connections for the future job market, where you have students of low socioeconomic status who are only hanging out with kids of lower socioeconomic status, which is, of course, generalization. You know, some, there is definitely outliers on both sides, but you're keeping that room for social advancement. And on that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome to Currently Reading with Abigail. The book I'm currently reading is Gilead by Mary Lynn Robinson. This book is an intimate retelling of the ancestral memories of a dying father to his young son. These memories span from the Civil War to the early 20th century. It is full of a love passed from father to son as John Ames passes his legacy and faith to his son. It is a wonderful story about faith and peace and the trials of life in America's heartland. See you next time. Welcome back to episode two on our series on education. Today we're talking about public versus private education. I want to bring back something that you said a minute ago, which was that private education causes the lower class or the um, the impoverished to stay in poverty. I want to push back on that idea a little bit. I know that the listeners probably by this point expect uh, Abigail and I to always agree, but it's I... basically unfair. <laughs> I, I'm we gonna, disagree so much. I'm, I'm just going to pull a little bit from both your perspectives today. Hopefully I will be a little bit more bipartisan throughout this conversation. So my thought was that I think that private education can do what it wants and not necessarily directly cause the impoverished to stay in poverty. I get that there's a poverty cycle, but I feel like that poverty cycle is perpetuated and aggravated by its current cause causation, like the things that push people back, such as um, their parents needing to pull students from their education early because of working at home or because they um, have a, some other change mm -hmm. of plans that cause them not to graduate or not to be able to even entertain the idea of going on to bigger and better things mm -hmm. with schools like going to university. I, I feel like that is more of the direct um, cause of the, the people in poverty staying in poverty is the things already perpetuating that cycle. However, I do agree that private education does put more contrast between the two groups. I, I definitely get the whole idea of um, families having their kids kind of rub elbows and eventually become their business partners in the mm -hmm. future. I get that idea. And I could see how that could continue in a cycle, especially whenever you're in the same town or you're in the same uh, bracket of society and you constantly are only around those people. And I can see how also that becomes this feedback loop of only having the same ideas perpetuated. I don't think that causes poverty, though, by itself. Other factors include. I totally agree that the cycle of poverty is way more nuanced than just education, for sure. Um, but something that's really interesting is that families that are less educated um, usually invest less in school choice decisions, right? Because they're busy. Usually you think of lower education, you think of more on, on the poverty line, more low middle class, low class socioeconomically, right? And so working more than one job, possibly all kinds of factors that make education not the first thought, right? And so because these less educated families are investing less in school choice, they're less informed than families who have 
more socioeconomic status, right, to be able to put the value on educating their children. So even if it isn't a direct cause, I do think it's a piece of it. Um, maybe not the biggest piece of the poverty cycle pie, but it's definitely a, a piece of it. Because if you have families who can't consider education as important because they're just desperately trying to put food on the table, then it's gonna their children will come who don't have as high a value of education. Although that's not always the case, I do think it's overwhelmingly frequent. Uh, I think, yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Abigail, with your assessment of the potential dangers of private education. Um, and I also do think, like, I mean, like you said, it's, it is only part of the, I think you said poverty pie or whatever, <laughs> whatever kind of pie that would be. Um, I, I think the main thing is it's probably not a, delicious uh, a few pie. things like we, I think we agree on what the problem is. Um, but I think our main disagreement would come where, how do we solve that problem? Uh, it seems like a lot of a lot of discussion about this topic is centered around, oh, well, the system is such a way that it causes or it traps these people in these cycles, and it forces them to stay in that, and you know, in their lower or poorer class or however you want to call it, working class. Um, and yet, like. To me, then the solution is if, we, if the system is not reliable, how can we give more power to the system to try to solve that? And so to me, that, that's kind of a strange thing to say. Uh, I don't, and I know we haven't, I don't think we've quite gotten there in terms of, but you have said that like private education is, is not good for the public. Um, and so then it, the alternative of public education is what, what, you know, give more power to the system, but the system's already biased. It just doesn't seem. Uh, to make a lot of sense. Also, my second point is education is in some ways a service. If you think about it, it's, I mean, from a purely, I mean, if you think about it economically, you're exchanging commodities to receive a service back. As parents, you're giving money to a school, either to the government through taxes to fund the schools, or you are directly paying the school in the, in the case of private education. Um, and just like any other service, those who, who are not in an economically advantageous position have a hard time affording that same service. Like you could talk about access to vehicles and being able to travel places, right? That, you know, not everyone has a car and can afford to drive everywhere. And so are we going to also say that, you know, maybe the government should mandate everyone should have the same size car with the same capacities and everyone gets a, here, you have this, you know, Hyundai Elantra, definitely not sponsored by Hyundai Elantra, but, you know, or, or any other service that's like, okay, this service seems to perpetuate a cycle of poverty. Let's make sure everyone gets the same thing. That to me does not seem to be a solution. I, I want to push back on that logic just a little bit because I just listened to this book by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers, and in it he talks about um, coupling, and coupling is this idea that uh, one thing some uh, actually gets tied to another thing in action and could be potentially stopped if we recognize the pattern. Mm -hmm. So I want to. So the reason why I bring up coupling is because in the UK in the 1960s and 50s and 40s, uh, up to that point, people had been using gas in their uh, ovens and in their kitchens that was coal-based. And coal-based gas had carbon dioxide in it, and people were committing suicide using this gas. And carbon uh, monoxide. Carbon monoxide. monoxide sorry. Monoxide, yep. So they were committing suicide using this gas and. In the, from the 60s to 19, I think, 71, 72, but it took about 10 years, but the government slowly transitioned the entire UK over from using one kind of gas, the, the coal-based gas, to using natural gas, which didn't have carbon monoxide in it. In order to do that, they had to transition every single appliance that used the other coal-based gas prior took 10 years. They went one town at a time. And obviously it was a massive effort. And I think one commentator said that it was the greatest countrywide effort since World War II. And after that had been done by the government, it was mandated by the government, the uh, suicide rate dropped by, I think, two thirds. And if not more than that, I can't remember the exact statistic. My point being that 
uh, sometimes the government, what, if something will happen and the government says this needs to happen for the good of the public, then it's not necessarily going to um, make everyone be robots of each other. It may be an actually genuine good idea that could be for the greater good of the public and not necessarily put everyone into boxes. Was that, that decision wasn't done against the will of the people, though, right? It would have been, when you think about it from the people who were committing suicide, like if, if they were being interviewed before well, I mean, committing suicide. I mean, suicide, the people who had their appliances changed, like the government, when, I mean, I've, whenever we say the government does something, especially in a democracy, we mean usually that the representatives of the people have made a decision. Of course, you know, there are flaws, right? Gerrymandering, all this crazy stuff. But like, theoretically, the decision is made on behalf of the people. So I if I remember right, it wasn't a consensus by all parties to do it. I think it was a ruling by the the those in power. In the parliament. Yeah, but I don't even know if it was majority. I think it was it was the prime minister convincing everyone else to do it because someone else brought forward a a study that they had conducted that said the number of people that were committing suicide using their um, coal-based gas in their kitchens. So you're so if, if I'm understanding this correctly, you're likening the change from coal-based appliances to whatever they change natural to gas. natural gas mm-hmm. is the change from... Only to say that, like, that government, whenever the government is doing something and may tell everyone, everyone needs to make this change or everyone needs to switch over to this, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily that they're removing our rights. Someone could have said at that point, um, you're removing my right to use the kind of gas that I want to use in my kitchen. But it was that right was taken away from them whenever they realized the public danger. Yeah, I know that was kind of a backwards yeah. way to make that point, but... no. That's what I thought. I think that makes sense. Traffic laws are good. Yeah. 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 That's the same way. I can't drive on the left side of the road. True. Even though but you may have the right to. I may have the right to, right. But as mm-hmm. a citizen of a country, I, it's part of the social contract to give up my rights to the government in exchange right. for protection, social order. Right. All that kind of stuff. Which... Which we're totally going a little crazy off topic. I want to I want to bring it back on topic because I want to say that I kind of agree with James on the value of private education, and it, it, I'm also going to talk about another book I'm reading right now called The Coddling of the American Mind, and in it they talk about how. Um, in universities in the last five years or so, public universities, I know we're stepping out of the K-12 zone, but in public universities, there's this rise of safetyism where students um, are equating words with violence and claiming that if someone that they disagree with sharing their ideas on their college campus, uh, they will protest it and claim that that person is committing an act of violence against them. It's happened in many Ivy League schools across mm-hmm. the U.S. and especially it's like the whole the, idea of like safe spaces, and safe all that kind spaces of stuff, that yeah. gets mocked on, in right leaning circles sometimes. But it is oh, yeah. getting I regularly <laughs> mock that. <laughs> it's it's getting worse. And Nonsense. one of the things that they uh, that in this book they talk about is the fact that. Um, Having the, the one of the things that caused that was uh, more professors in uh, liberal arts colleges and universities across the U.S. are in one particular political leaning than in ten years before, even five years before, and because of that, there's less of an exchange of ideas from diverse backgrounds and more of a echo chamber. And they say that a university needs to have enough of a disconfirmation balance that if you have about two to three left-leaning per every one right-leaning professor on a university campus, then it helps to erase confirmation bias from specific studies, specific research, uh, theses being published. It helps cancel that out, which is one of the reasons why we trust academic circles, because they attempt to be less biased in their research and in commentary. So I kind of think, I just recently read this, which is why it's on my mind. I kind of think that private versus public education is actually, instead of versus, I think we need both. I honestly now I'm thinking that public education is uh, one mix of ideas and private education is the other half and not necessarily half of the population, but that when they mix together in the workplace or elsewhere in life, then that exchange of ideas continues to get rubbed 
off and all of the, the rust that would accumulate on your ideas gets refined. You get to be thinking more about what you believe and you're not necessarily funneled into thinking only what an elite class member would think about society. And that assumes that you would work in the same place, but I do think that both are valuable together because of being different. And with that, we're going to take another break. And welcome to the segment called Words Are Hard with Candace, where I share an interesting word or phrase. Today's word is anaphora. Anaphora means the repetition of the first words in a line and comes from the Greek ana, meaning back and therein to bear. Martin Luther King uses anaphora in his I Have a Dream speech with the phrase, I have a dream. Anaphora. And we're back. We've been talking about public and private education. Candace, before the break, you made a couple of really good points. Thank you. About um, the idea of disconfirmation trying to prevent confirmation bias for things by ensuring that um, people are rubbing shoulders with people of different belief systems than them. You said that you think that it defended the idea of having a private versus public education, K-12, so that as they filtered into colleges and universities, that it would allow for some of that to happen. But I would argue that that same point is the reason why we need to have less private education and more public education for students, because it allows students from different socioeconomic and religious backgrounds to be interacting with each other at the formative age of when they're becoming their idea or forming their ideas, where they're able to begin to develop that identity around not just one small group of people, but rather a larger population in total. To me, the funny thing is you can't force people to talk to other people. Like, We've been talking about, oh, we have to have the exchange of ideas, and that's great, but, like, the government can't force that. The government can't force you to be in a place that you don't want to be in, force you to talk to people you don't want to talk to. Like, we have a choice of, like, I can hang out with you guys because I want to hang out with you guys. Like, I made that choice. We're doing this podcast because we made a choice to do it. We're not legislated and government, and the government's not saying like, okay, everyone must talk to people who have different ideas than you. Here, be in this room, right? And like that, that to me is just, that's completely against freedom of speech. But the government can ensure that people are in the same area as each other, can kind of require people to be put into situations where the talking could happen. No, You mean areas in, like, geographical location? As in public schools for kids. To you where think about, like, Congress. Congress yeah. is a, a big old example of this. It's a gym of ideas where they have to sit together and meet and decide and have bipartisanship if it happens, but they have to discuss. And you're right. A government official can't stand behind you and force you to talk, but if you're in certain circumstances, you're more likely to talk to someone of a different, like, socioeconomic background if you're surrounded by people who are also of different socioeconomic background. Um, that's, I don't think that's always possible everywhere. Like, what about like a rural farm city in the middle of nowhere? That's actually, I think, the, the problem of the U.S. is that a lot of um, divides socioeconomically and, and in power balance or power structure are based on geography. It's, yeah, and it's, you can't, like, I mean, I, it's, you know, in a big city like New York, it's easy to say, like, okay, this area, you have, like, you know, f- people from a bunch of different countries, but, like, the same can't be said of every place in the U.S., and you can't say, okay, you, you must have, for example, uh, like, you know, that example of the left re- left-leaning professors and right-leaning professors, you can't mandate a school, you must have... 30% African Americans. Isn't that there aren't any like if there aren't any in that geographical area what are you going to do? You know what I mean? That's actually I think one of the the problems though with school choice. I think we talked about it last time mm-hmm. that that schools because they can use the argument of 
we we can't necessarily meet a threshold just arbitrarily because you can't make people move anywhere. They can redraw their lines however they want around schools. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about that with I, I had a school. Um, there were two different high schools in this school district, and one high school was considered kind of like the public high school, and the other high school was considered the more privatized one because it was built brand new in the middle of all these brand new housing development areas mm-hmm. and away from all the buses. None of the bus right. routes went through. And, well, and that's like the idea of gentrification, right? You've got these, mm-hmm. and again, that's like, are people free to make that choice? Like, can people who are able to move to a different location, who are you to stop them? Is it great for society and, like, the unity of everyone living in this area? Maybe not, right? Because you do, like, you know, if you move into the suburbs, you're expecting a certain kind of lifestyle. You're expecting certain kind of neighbors. Um, and they those expectations may not be grounded in compassion or kindness. But you have, like, in the United States, that's a freedom that's guaranteed to individuals is if you have the means to do something that's and it's legal you like you can you can move somewhere you can go out west and like buy a plot of land you know that's the whole idea of the united states and i think that goes back to the idea of is private education good for the common good or is it just something that exists because it can right i would argue that um putting a high school in the middle of a suburb with no bus routes accessing to it is bad for the common good is it something that can happen sure is it good no so then you're defining common good as what because if we're defining common good as people who are in that area like that's great so i mean you know again it goes back to the geography like for whom are we like as a whole country a high school in a white suburb is that going to make a difference? When I think that since it's a political question, yeah, I, I would be arguing that it should be good for the whole of the country, not just one neighborhood or one city or one suburb. So every school that is built must be good for the entire country. I, I want to push back on it a little wait, wait, bit. Wait, no, no, no. Can you yeah. respond to that? Because I, I mean, I, that... Ask your question again. Is Because you just, you were asking, the example you gave was high school in a, in a suburb is not good for the entire country. Right. What, and that's the argument that they should not do it? Yeah. So every school that's ever built needs to be assessed on whether or not it's good for the entire country? Well, it should be built with the idea of what is best for our country as a whole, not what is best for this particular neighborhood. I would even but say state could be okay as well. But okay. state makes more sense because so, yeah, like, it, every, every school is run by that. Every public school is within that state's that's education. That's true. So yeah. then within, okay, so then even within that state, like Texas is i mean its Huge. own country like what are you gonna do? like uh, there's to me there's just no logistical way to manage that and say okay i've built this school it's good for the entire state of texas but then if you think of texas you also are thinking of a lot of people who hold on to old ideas of racism and i'm just fear. i was just thinking of a large state no, I know, Actually. I know, but like to go with the idea of Texas, right? Sure. Like I know you were just thinking of a large state. You're also thinking of a lot of segregation that still happens in the state of Texas. And so... No, I'm thinking of the higher population of Hispanics living near the Mexican border and the fact that schools there would require a different type of program, maybe one that has more Spanish-oriented, you know, adjusting curriculum for based the needs on of the, the students. For the needs of the students, right? I'm not against Versus... It. I'm not against adjusting curriculum for the needs of the students. What I'm I'm against is putting a school in an area to allow for segregation to continue to occur because a parent can choose to have their kid go to a school that doesn't have Hispanic or black students in it because only rich white people can buy the houses. That's what I'm against. And thinking of a place like Texas, people do that kind of stuff to be able to keep their kids from having to rub shoulders with, you know, undesirable minority populations. I'll save my thought because I think it's time for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome to the segment called Jokes with James. My jokes are hilarious. Marius is a Roman name. Today's joke is... How much room do fungi need to grow? As much room as possible. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Welcome back. 
to our conversation about public versus private education. Candace. So something that Abigail was was getting into before about how um, lower class or poverty or um, also segregation is like all these problems are kind of connected together with uh, private versus public education. And I wanted, it reminded me also of something that I think can be a tendency whenever we're talking about um, classes or about poverty in the U.S., our tendency is to start practicing into intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And I want to read a little passage from the book that I'm reading right now called The Coddling of the American Mind, which talks about intersectionality. Intersectionality is a theory based on several insights that we believe are valid and useful. Power matters. Members of group are sometimes act cruelly or unjustly to preserve their power. And people who are members of multiple identity groups can face various forms of disadvantage in ways that are often invisible to others. But our purpose here is not to critique the theory itself. It is rather to explore the effect that certain interpretations of intersectionality may now be having on campuses. The human mind is prepared for tribalism, and these interpretations of intersectionality have the potential to turn tribalism way up. These interpretations of intersectionality teach people to see bipolar dimensions of privilege and oppression as ubiquitous in social interactions. The reason why I read that piece is because I feel like sometimes we want to demonize everyone in certain categories because of how they overlap with other categories. So mm-hmm. for example, um, I've, I've been wrestling with this over the years, uh, kind of assuming that if uh, that all men are uh, thinking a certain way about women mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying to look at my own uh, cognitive dissonance and see, no, I can, I can assume the best also. I can assume this is going on as well. I can assume other things other than them mistreating women or mm-hmm. uh, looking down on women in some way. But I feel like when we're talking about private versus public, the easy thing is to say that everyone who's getting a private education is racist, homophobic or any other category of of supposed insult and that everyone who's getting a public education is the good guys that they are the people who are uh, going to be spreading ideas diversely in society and aren't are willing to pull themselves up by their bootstraps whereas the private school people they didn't have to work to where they are they get to have the freeloading of life and I want to challenge that a little bit and say that there is some gray area between. There are people that, like us, have various uh, spectrums within our education. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and I want to say I totally agree with you. I did not mean to infer that I think that everyone who goes to private school should be demonized or families who send their kids to private school should be demonized. And, and most- we think Texas is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right, Abigail? Yes. We love Texas. Great food. Yes. I grew up there. And people. Anyway, um, not everyone is racist. And not every family who goes to a public school or has public education is awesome either. Um, there's definitely overlap for sure. I think that the system it is broken and that by adding more to the public educational system, even some of those funds that families are willing to dish out to private schools being poured in the public school system, it would improve for the common good better, right? Um, one of the things that private schools tend to do as a whole, again, not every private school, um, that is really detrimental to public education, and I would argue for the common good of American citizens, is something called cream skimming, where they are able to pick um, the best students based upon athletic abilities, test scores, any number of these factors, right? Musical ability, language, depending on the kind of school it is. And they're able to expel or not choose certain students to come because they don't fit this good enough quality. And unfortunately, those things can be anything. It doesn't just have to be, oh, you didn't get a good enough score to get in. It can be Mm, we don't like your address or we don't like the color of your skin or we don't like your sexual orientation or we don't like your religion or whatever it is, they can choose to exclude schools and only take what that particular school would qualify as the cream of the crop, where because of government um, governance over public education, they can choose, they, they, there's not a choice. A public school has to take kids regardless of whatever their background is and put it in, into the school if they want to go. One of the um, examples, I think, of 
that for public education is that when I was um, teaching in a public school, we had a student who was um, assaulting other kids, like, um, like really intensely, and it was becoming really bad, and there were things being put into place to protect the other students, and it was getting better, but my first instinct was, why can't we expel her? And the reason was because of protections put in place to keep students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, diverse um, minorities, to be able to protect them in the school so that a school can't choose to get rid of them. But those same protections are not in private schools. A private school has a lot of choice to be able to remove kids. Now, having a kid who's assaulting other kids in the school is not a good thing, but having protection based upon um, uh, making it a number of factors that have to be able to, before a kid can just be forcibly removed from a school, is good. So the particular product was bad, although the idea is good. I mean, I think that's fair for, for a government. If it's government run, it, you know, it shouldn't discriminate. And obviously, I don't, I'm not saying we should discriminate, even you know, as private schools, but there is... There is a difference between something that's state-run and something that's privately operated because there are guidelines. Absolutely. Or there are different... There's different rules. Because yes. if, you're, if you're privately... I mean, even the example of whether or not we're accepting students... I mean, let's not pretend that there aren't... Like, there are uh, kids of all races in low socioeconomic status. Yes. And there are kids of yes. all races in upper socioeconomic statuses, right? We can talk about, like, the proportions are different, obviously. Um, but, like, if I'm hiring for a position, like, I'm, I'm allowed to look at the qualifications of certain of my applicants, and I, if, if I'm running a private business, like, it, well, I wouldn't discriminate based on race, but I can discriminate based on like educational background, right? Whether or not they've had, uh, you know, training in their field, whether or not they have experience that I find acceptable, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that, that's totally subjective, right? There's no rule that's like, oh, five years of work experience at a fast food restaurant is equal to two years of work experience at Chick-fil-A, which is like, <laughs> you know, a step better <laughs> than just McDonald's. Um but you know, like they're you know, in a private enterprise, you like you have the freedom to do that. But if you're a public, then you can't. I totally agree. But I think that's the problem with the privatization of education because it doesn't allow for um, diversification of private schools because private entities are being able to choose which students are going into those schools. Right, and so then that I don't think there's a way to solve that without taking away people's choice. I think the, dis the, the reason that this feels like it goes against, uh, it goes against the grain of our educational desires that we want to have kind of equality is because private education oftentimes has better um, supplies, better, mm -hmm. uh, the smaller class size, which by the way, smaller class size isn't always better. Like you're, there really is a happy medium spot of good class size. And if you go too small, it's actually the same as if you had a class of 35 or 30. Um, I think because of the disparity that we see between public, publicly funded schools and their lack of funds sometimes, or the lack of supplies or the lack of teachers, the fact that teacher shortage is a thing in the U.S., because of that, we want to level the playing field. We want more kids to have more access to education compared to private schools, kind of keeping a lot of the, I guess, abundance of supplies and manpower and everything else that comes with a private school. And I think that goes into this idea that um, many studies have shown that all children are not exposed to the same educational opportunities and that those of higher income families have a significant easier, significantly easier time accessing high quality education, where conversely, students of low income parents have a really hard time accessing high quality education. And and it goes into that because more funds, because of the privatization of it, of course, get put into the private schools. But if we're to say, oh, we're going to privatize everything, then those low-income kids are still at a disadvantage, which deepens the classism 
in our in our country, right? Whereas if everything is public, then you know you don't have things to account for um, religious education or um, international education for students who are not necessarily like American as they're trying to go into school as well. And I think that that's really a really hard kind of place to come to reconcile with, right? But I think if you're looking for the greatest good for the greatest number of people, then minimizing private education down to a few specific like types of private education um, or even less private education institutions ultimately is better for the population as a whole. So hypothetically, since it sounds like creating a society that is completely equal for all is the goal here, which Utopia. I might contend is impossible, um, at least on earth it's impossible. Like, let's say all of the schools are equal and public. There's still going to be a gap between the rich and the poor, right? So what's the next thing that we're going to have to equalize? I think that what we need to exchange our terms. Instead of thinking of equality for schools, I think we need to think of equity for schools. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So like, let's say that you have a public school that's in a really wealthy neighborhood. Maybe those students all can afford school supplies and will bring their school supplies all on the first day. Maybe the exact same uh, size public school 30 minutes down the road, their students cannot afford school supplies and the school may need to provide more school supplies. Even though it wouldn't be equal to put more funding towards the school where the kids can't afford pencils, right, okay, we so need to have equity in that way. Yeah, sure. So that, that's what I mean. Like, we have a school system where everyone's, you know, all the students are have all their needs, educational needs taken care of, yeah. right? There's still going to be socioeconomic difference because wages because work, because work ethic, because culture, because family background. But who's so to say that the work we, ethic wouldn't be equal whenever given the same opportunities? Like the, I read a poem mm -hmm. recently that was written by a high schooler where he uh, wrote about I woke up this morning and woke up late and I didn't have these things. I didn't have a good night's rest because my parents were fighting all night. I didn't get on the bus because I was too busy making lunch for my sibling. I didn't have this. And you're yelling at me because I don't have a pencil. And there's all these other factors that come into play whenever we're looking at a, a student's education, which I agree with, that there, there will be disparity at home. But oftentimes our... Um, willingness to participate in education is based on whether or not we feel cared for. If we feel a environment mm -hmm. is welcoming to us, that we can make mistakes, that we can try new opportunities, that we can be creative, and that we can invest in the people around us. That's Those are the things that help us feel safe enough to grow in our education. No, like that's already... What I'm saying is that's all there. So then all, you're asking like, about the next step after? Like, because, I mean, it seems like the goal is the greatest public good, Right which is everyone gets uh, uh, equitable access to furthering their career, whatever, right? I don't even know what the end goal would be in this hypothetical utopian society. Well, Productive I think members like, of the What's the next step, right? Like, everyone has a great schooling, right? Teachers love you. There's a lot of supplies. You get, you know, 14 pencils, whatever, <laughs> school lunch, bus, I don't care. And then... What's next? Like, are we going to make sure that all of them get the same amount of internet time at home? Are we going to make sure every kid has the same amount of devices at home? Are we make sure that kids have two parents and not one? Are we going to make sure kids have this many books at home? Are we going to make sure that everyone lives this far away from a library, even if they're in the middle of Montana? Like, <laughs> what? What's the, there's no next step here to guaranteeing a a country that is, you know, good. For the entire country. Well, because and there, that's, there's no way. Well, and I think that you bring up a lot of other important points if we're trying to say that um, for kind of leveling the playing field overall, right? Kind of going back to that idea of the poverty pie, this is just one piece of it. And it's maybe not even the biggest piece out of the pie. There's a lot of other, a lot of other things that affect that cycle of poverty. But I do think that this is one of the bigger ones, not having access to an equitable education or having kids who are having access to a better education than other kids based upon socioeconomic or other desirable traits that aren't necessarily um, 
looked at across the board because of whatever the status that the kid has no control over is. And I think that when there's something you said in our, one of our other episodes where you talked about how, um, it's the church's job to take care of the widow and orphan. And I totally agree. And I also think that, um, there's only so much that we, or there's only so so much time that we can wait around for the church to do what it's what it's called to do before mm-hmm. we can say we we want this to be to be done, and so we're willing to see it done by whatever source, whether it's the government or another group. So educating our kids, I I love the idea of the church education. I love an idea of like a Christian education. I I love all of those um, those pieces that come together to make someone holistically uh, growing in their education. But I also believe that we, if I really care about all people, then I need to be caring about every kid getting an equitable education. Ultimately, I think that in talking about U.S. education, my position is still that private education isn't good for the majority of people. Um, the percentage of people who are in middle class, mid and low, um, far outweigh the number of people who are in upper middle class and higher socioeconomic s- statuses. And those are the people who continue to benefit from the privatization of education because they have the money to pay for it. Whereas these families who are in that mid and low mid, as well as below the poverty line, cannot benefit from privatiz- privatized education without some sort of a help from other outside sources, which continues to drive the lines between the high educated or the quality educated and the low educated. Not to say that public schools do not also have very high quality, can't have high quality education. I've taught with some really amazing teachers at public schools, but speaking in terms of generality. And I think that with that being said, we have kind of come up again inconclusive on whether private versus public education is better. Thanks for listening. And once again, you've reached inconclusive end of the inconclusive podcast. Sharing is caring. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the inconclusive podcast. Talk to you next time. Thank you.